we're very lucky to have uh, with us talking about the theme of the evolution of public space, David Green, who is uh, a principal at Perkins and Will, uh, based in London, having moved there, um, was it last year, David? Um, and uh, working from there, but on projects internationally. But previously, he had spent many years as an academic teaching at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he has, I think, an extremely interesting uh, series of, of uh, points and perceptions about how public space has evolved in our cities. And that's what he's going to talk to us about now. David. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, is this on? Do I need to turn this one on? No, okay, there we go. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk to you all really briefly um, for about 30 minutes or so about the evolution of public space in a little bit of a different way. And it's kind of funny for those of you that were here this morning, it's a little bit of a mediation um, between the two original lecturers, Lutai Kerr and, and Peter Cook. And somehow in the middle of those two, there's some way that we can start to look at cities, I think, that's a, a slight bit different. Um, so I'm going to start with a story. I do uh, live in London. When I started presenting this story, I did not live in London, so I had to sort of make it up. But, but the, the point of the story is I'm walking home one day uh, in London, and I've done something to upset my wife. Uh, I have no idea what it is, but I do it all the time. And so I've decided that I'm going to stop into a florist. And I'm going to buy her her favorite flowers. And her favorite flowers are roses. And so I walk into the florist, and I see that I can buy roses that were grown in two different places. I can buy roses that were grown in the Netherlands, or I can buy roses that were grown in Kenya. And because I'm the kind of person that wants to do good in the world, because I'm the kind of person that cares about my children and grandchildren and the environment, and because I've been told for years and years and years that buying local is better, I buy the roses that were grown in the Netherlands. Because the roses that were grown in the Netherlands are shipped over in the most environmentally sustainable way, they're shipped 220 miles, whereas the roses that are coming in from Kenya are coming four, over 4,000 miles via jet, which everybody knows is the least sustainable way of moving goods throughout the world. But I get home, give her the roses, everything seems to be okay, and I start to think about it, and I think, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to this than just the idea of how we're getting something from point A to point B. Maybe the idea, the axiom, that buying local is a good thing isn't always right. Maybe there's more to the story. And so I start to investigate, and I look at the way the roses are actually grown. And I come to find out that the roses that are grown in the Netherlands require amazing amounts of energy, fertilizer, um, and other natural resources to produce these, these beautiful things. Whereas the roses that are grown in Kenya require almost no additional uh, uh, powered uh, uh, irrigation or any, any kind of uh, unnatural process fertilizer. So at the end of the day, what I find out is that the carbon footprint, even including moving the roses by jet from Kenya, is six times less for those roses coming from the east side of Africa than for the roses coming from just 220 miles away. Now, you're probably sitting there wondering, what does this have to do with public space? Well, it has to do with a very simple fact that when we look at cities, we have ideas about the way we want cities to emerge. But we constantly make decisions, decisions we think are good, but decisions that are actually getting us further from our stated goals. My goal by buying the roses that were grown in the Netherlands was to make the world a more environmentally sustainable place. I was actually doing something which was significantly, in comparison, detrimental to that particular goal. Now, 
within this context, we think about cities. And the sort of primary question we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of city do we want to be? And so um, when, when Lou Tai was talking this morning about what kind of city Singapore wanted to be in 1960, they had a kind of clear vision. I'm going to take exception to a couple of things that he said as I move through this discussion. Um, but we have to know that. And, and the problem with this is that we have no way to predict market fluctuations, and so many different people want so many different things in each of these cities. It's telling that when, when he was talking about uh, the, <laughs> the idea that we have to project population, which I find insane, right? And just blithely said, well, we were projecting 5.5 uh, million people by 2090, and it turned out it happened in 2015. That's a 75-year delta, right? That's an amazing difference. And so the idea that we're actually planning for a knowable future is crazy. We need to think about cities in a slightly different way and public space. And so the way to do this, maybe, is to look back at cities and the way they were planned before a lot of stuff happened in the 20th century. Not to say that in some sort of nostalgic way we should simply go back to planning the way cities were planned for the Romans. We'll talk about that a bit. But understand what, what it was that created cities for this two and a half millennia. Now, this is uh, Hippolytus that was designed by, uh, 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 Hippodamus that was designed, uh, Miletus that was designed by Hippodamus, sorry, uh, on the Turkish coast. It was designed about 2,500 years ago, arguably the first planned city. It is planning in the sense that it's only showing two things. It's showing what's public and what's private. It's projecting a thing that 2,500 years ago to the Greeks was something that was understood as the public realm, right? public realm, public space, the things that we hold collectively, nothing more, nothing less. The Romans did this as well. They were simply projecting what was public, public buildings, the things we hold collectively, and private space that was developed for residences or businesses or other things. The best example of this that was, that was put in place over 2,000 years after this happened was the Commissioner's Plan of 1811 in New York. It's hard to to keep this in mind, but planning for arguably the most complex city in the world was nothing more than what Hippodamus had done 2,500 years earlier on the Turkish coast. Obviously, it wasn't Turkey at the time. He, they simply, three guys on this commission simply said, for really interesting, crazy reasons that had to do with everything from commerce to right-angled buildings, et cetera, et cetera, to simply project a series of public spaces that were streets and the resultant private blocks. Because everybody moved around the world on foot or on horses at the time, there was a kind of dimensional capacity that worked really well. That's it, right? That's what planned what's arguably the most complex city on the face of the planet today. So at, at the turn of the, the, the 18th century, this is what New York looked like, right? And it now, 200 years later, looks like this. The thing through this process that hasn't changed is the projected area of the public realm. So at the intersection of Lexington and 32nd, 150 years ago in 1865, we had these uses. Keep that in the back of your mind, the idea of uses, right? Everybody talks about planting cities around uses. If anybody says that to you, you should turn around and run because they do not understand the way cities work. So this is a two-story farmhouse with three-story flats. Um, mercantile, et cetera, et cetera. That same intersection, right, is this 200 years later. The uses have changed dramatically over that 200-year time frame, but the 
the public space, the place that we walk, the place we put gas, the place we put water, hasn't changed. The way we move through those streets has changed tremendously. But what this means from the perspective of sustainability and accommodation is that this public realm, this place where we gather, that we hold collectively, could mediate between all of the different things that needed to happen through those 200 years. So as Peter Cook is talking about all these crazy projects, these things can then get inserted into this thing called a framework, right? Happens in Philadelphia, this is Penn's drawing. Now the interesting thing about this diagram or this series of plans is that what started out as the subdivision of land for agricultural purposes transformed over the next couple of centuries into something that was used for an entirely, entirely different purpose. Imagine William Penn had been starting with the idea of uses and said, we're gonna build a bunch of farmland, right? And then we're gonna let people build subdivisions over time as they need to based on something called transportation demand modeling, which is like black magic, right? We would have had an entirely different situation. So think about this. Every city we've designed up until about November 22nd of 1926 was done through no more than the projection of public rights of way. Now, this is a slide I stole from a colleague of mine who was also my mentor, um, a guy called Doug Allen who taught at Georgia Tech for almost 40 years. And what this describes is the relationship between two kinds of orders, right? The constitutional order um, and the economic order. And the constitutional order is the projection, right? J.B. Jackson talks a lot about this, right? The projection of those things that we hold collectively, the public realm, the thing that is legally defined as that which we all own in common. Within this, we have subdivided areas that are locations for building things like houses, um, office buildings, hospitals, everything else that are built through some kind of development process. This is the political framework within which every single city in the world works, whether it's eastern, western, southern, northern, it doesn't matter. And the idea here is that through design, we should be able to articulate this to reinforce or make present the political structure within which we all live. That's important, right? So a framework, everybody here understands exactly what this is. There's a kind of neutral thing that allows different things to get inserted. Think again, the crazy buildings Peter was talking about this morning. It can expand, it can accommodate change without itself fundamentally changing, right? It can do this for buildings, all different kinds of buildings, whether those buildings are, are residential or commercial, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't have to look like a grid. And every time I do this presentation, somebody raises their hand and says, well, we don't want to be New York. Well, that's not the point, right? Or it doesn't have to be an orthogonal grid. Of course, it doesn't have to be an orthogonal grid. It's about projecting what we hold collectively and what we, what we hold individually. It's also important to understand that talking about sustainability, this city, Paris, and this is one of the Turgo maps from 1750, had a street called Boulevard Saint-Michel that had a sewer that was still operating in the 1950s that had been built 1,700 years previously by the Romans. Think about the way that we lay land out now, right, with streets and infrastructure, and understand how it would be possible to have a piece of collective or public infrastructure working for those 1,800 years. They didn't know that was gonna happen. It was embedded in the system that they'd set up. But as architects, we start to think about something that planners, um, and others who deal, engineers, transportation engineers who deal with cities have no concept of, and that's scale, right? And so this is public space. 
not public realm, right? Public realm is the land that's owned by the government, right, that we hold in common. Public space is what emerges through the physical constitution of those, those private developments and the design of the public rights of way or parks. And the fundamental element to that is the block. And everybody needs to really understand how blocks work. And so we look at cities from all over the world and understand how big a piece of land is that's carrying development. Now, on the bottom right, you see New York. It's 200 feet, and it, the, the, the lengths of blocks change, but this is the block that, that the Empire State Building sits on, 200 feet by about 780 feet. The footprint of the Empire State Building is 200 feet by 400 feet, right? It's, it is less than a single acre. The building that was the largest building in the world for about 50 years sits on a parcel of land that is, is incredibly tiny, that was originally designed for about 16 single-family residential units. But we've totally lost this idea. And so this is a project in Atlanta that I worked on for years. It was a parcel along this thing called the Atlanta Beltline. We'd ask people what this should be. And they would say, oh, a, a farmer's market or a mixed-use project, blah, 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 blah. The use, 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 use. When in fact, this thing is, is 11 New York City blocks, but that never comes up. It would be like asking people in New York, think about this. What asking people in New York, what they should do between 5th and 6th Avenue, between 32nd and 43rd Street, and the answer being, well, it should be a Whole Foods, right? It makes absolutely no sense, but this is the way we plan in the world today. So what comes from this is the notion that how we divide up our land is more important than what we do with it. So the idea of subdivision, right? How we distribute the physical dispensation of the cities within which we live. Now, I'm not gonna go into this too much, but there's some political stuff that happened in the 1920s, primarily the, the US federal government issuing, um, enabling statutes for first zoning, in 1926, which meant throughout the United States, it was more important to determine what the use of a thing was than putting in place what for those two and a half previous millennia had been understood as a master plan. And then two years later, there was something adopted and, and issued by the federal government that was called the City Planning Enabling Act, which said very specifically that all cities need to be laid out primarily by the projection of public rights of way. That was subsumed by the idea of zoning that caught on coming from Germany into the United States, then spread back to the UK, and then throughout the world. Every city that's planned today comes from this and early German zoning and as it goes through the United Kingdom. It's unbelievable. The vast majority of it is cut and pasted from the 1961 City of New York zoning ordinance. But prior to this, and it's a hard thing to imagine, this is from the 1916 zoning ordinance in the city of New York, all uses were tied to streets. And what that allowed you to do was put things together that were of different uses that fronted a street as opposed to creating a system that buffered and separated everything. Everybody sitting in this auditorium right now knows that at some point in the last 15 years they've thought, I've got an office park and I've got a residential component. I'm gonna put a big landscape buffer between these so they don't interfere with each other. No great city in the world works like that. There was absolutely nothing that was buffered between these areas, yet that's one of the main planning tools that we still use today, unbelievably. So then what happened, again, unbelievably, is that through this 200 years, the single thing that we use to plan cities, a projected street framework plan, is completely removed from the planning process. 
and in most cases, it is rendered illegal. It is illegal, and if not illegal, extraordinarily difficult to project public streets on future developable areas. So that one thing that was driving the constitution of the public realm is stripped from the planning process. And if you look at Singapore, it has nothing in those layers of plans that projects new streets other than the giant corridors that are connecting the new towns. Now, this has a great deal to do with the way, if we care about walking through cities and being healthy and all these other things, it has a great deal to do with the kind of perception that we have as we move through space. Who here has been to New York? Most people, right? I don't know, maybe a couple of people. So if I'm standing at the, at, at, uh, this is a funny thing. If I'm standing at the corner of Lexington and 32nd and a friend of mine calls up and says, hey, come have a cup of coffee, and they're at 42nd in Lexington, I think to myself, absolutely no problem. It's 10 blocks. I'll be happy to walk uptown and have a cup of coffee. It's half a mile, right? People say that, well, if it's more than half a mile, you won't walk. In a place like New York, of course you will. But if that same friend is cross town um, at 32nd and 6th, you, you think to yourself, well, you know, maybe not. And if it's not a really good friend, you're not going to actually go have that cup of coffee. Because walking cross town along those longer blocks is actually less comfortable. We perceive space moving at a slower pace, right? It's a kind of neurological construct that we have. So the physical form of the cities has a direct impact on the way we operate. But this is New York. It's going to work no matter what. This is a typical suburban development. It happens to be in Atlanta. It's a shopping center, not unlike this thing that we're sitting in right now, right? And if you imagine somebody walking along this street, interestingly called an arterial, right? That same 10 blocks, which is one block in this part of Atlanta, you would pretty much have to put a gun to somebody's head to make them do that. Now remember, this is all coming from planning. And this logic is exactly embedded in the way that we plan most cities today. And if you don't believe me, I did an analysis of Singapore. This is a, a, a typical block in Singapore outside of the Central Business District. It's about eight and a half New York City blocks. It's 60 acres, right? You could fit about 120 Empire State Buildings on that single block. But we don't think about the differentiation between the scalar components, the public space in New York and the public space of these places. The only way you can get from place to place to place here is by car. So you're cutting, or somehow through a kind of dispersed public transportation system. And if you want to come back in and take a piece of this out, there's no infrastructure that's held collectively that allows you to do that. So the, re the reconstruction or the repositioning of this over time as markets change is incredibly expensive and incredibly, incredibly um, uh, uh, resource deep, right? So we look at something like open space which has taken the place of public space. Open space is, I would argue, a horrible thing for cities. Everybody's going to disagree with me, but open space as an idea kills cities. And the reason it does is because it's not public space, right? It's transformed from something that was Central Park or the Tuileries, right, into something which is usable, or, or total open space surrounding a building. And I flipped through Le Corbusier very quickly, but it's, the, it's the, the physical manifestation through the regulatory framework of the idea of the Plan Voisin, absolutely. This is the 1961 City of New York zoning ordinance. Buildings have to be spaced for light and air, right? Absolutely, we don't want people dying or having uh, 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 health problems. And we're setting buildings back from the street too, and everybody sitting in this auditorium has had a jury where you said, and I quote, 
I'm pulling the building back from the street because I want to give something back to the public. That never works, right? In the city of New York that worked with the Seagram's building, it didn't work with the 95 other buildings within a five-block radius that tried to do the same thing. It simply destroyed the public space, the manifestation of that public realm. But it's codified, right? And ultimately, we end up with something like this. So, let me check my time. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're fine. So Jeremy said, finish this in 30 minutes, and we'll have a question and answer. But he said nobody really asked any questions. So maybe somebody will have some questions out there. I'll show you a couple of examples. Now, I don't know who did this project. It's in London somewhere, right? I mean, I've been there. But this is in London called Public Realm. This is not public. It is private, right? It is the outside of a building. In fact, it's the roof of a building. And so if we're trying to create something that's truly public, we can't, I would argue, if we're manifesting the, the, the idea of a kind of political public space, we can't do that with something that's owned by a single individual or corporation that can change over time, right? It needs to be a public expression, a public entity. It needs to be this. And part of the thesis of this is that streets are the single most important pieces of cities, yet they're the least least able to be put in place in the design of cities. I challenge you to look at any comprehensive plan for any city in the world right now, and you will not find the projection of public streets. It is, it is mind-numbing that it doesn't exist. And so Battersea Park in London, right? Everybody loves it. That little yellow, I mean, it's fine, I guess. That little yellow rectangle on this giant parcel is one New York block, right? The entire thing spans this, it's, it's two blocks, right? It spans this distance superimposed over New York, right? So the street network in New York, right, projected across that describes very clearly the difference between public realm and hence the expression of public space in a city that was laid out prior to 1926 and the expression of public realm and public space post-1926. We think we're doing a great job because we're creating pedestrian connections. This building, when I walked to the food court about a mile and a half down the way for lunch today, is a pedestrian connection. It will never be a street. When this goes out of business in five years, 10 years, 15 years, there is nothing that will remain of it. There's no residual public framework that allows for the long-term continuous use of these areas because it is based on a use, not on a physical dimension. So the epilogue, one slide, this is a project um, that I worked on for 15 years probably, on and off, both professionally and academically. And it is that project I, I referred to called the Atlanta Beltline. And in that project, there were 6,500 acres of industrial land that was getting redeveloped. So I spent about five years arguing with the city, using students to do the work, um, to make them understand that the single most important thing in the redevelopment of this area was the projection of public rights of way of streets. Um, we finally, finally got it adopted, unfortunately, as part of the zoning plan, which meant that a developer could come in and trade a street for more brick on buildings, right? So those two things are equivalent in, in, in planner's eyes, the public's eye, in most of our eyes, right? 
the, the, the style and the form of a building where architects, right, is somehow more important and the cost of the building than putting in these things that create our cities. But the funny thing about this is I thought I was being smart and I hired the director of planning from the city of Atlanta to work for me when I was trying to get this passed and I was presenting this to his successor. And after I finished the presentation, he turned to me and said, well, David, you can't do that because it's illegal. All I was asking to do, this was 2007, was to put in place a plan that projected public streets, which was exactly the way that the city of Atlanta came into fruition, right? All these neighborhoods that were surrounding these areas were done in this exact way, and he was telling me it was illegal. In fact, it wasn't illegal. It took us about two years. I didn't fire him. I should have fired him. But it took us about two years to get this finally adopted. The point of all of this is we all walk through these great cities. We all understand the nature of streets. We all understand how they were projected and how they created these incredibly vital, sustainable frameworks. Yet, universally, they are absent from our planning process. So that's it. If anybody has any questions, I think we have a few minutes left. Um, thank you, David, uh, for a, a, a real polemic about how we might um, think about uh, the projecting the future public space via, via the street. If anyone has a question, it's probably best, given that there are quite bright lights on the stage, if you could stand up. So that way I will, I will see you. But while you're thinking about questions, I just want to ask um, David a question, which is, is it possible to create this framework for streets without political backing? So, of course you can, and so what we ended up doing in Atlanta, because we had no political backing, was to project public rights of way and make developers or whomever was building the projects build streets that met public works requirements, and then at some point in the future they could be deeded over to the, to the public. Of course, it's absolutely possible. But if you don't do that, you can never go back and get it. It's impossible. So, so you have to have the, the concept of street, that's what you're trying to embed. That the, that yeah. streets are, 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 are what, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of you know great advocates of streets like Jane Jacobs, you know who who you know right. what's it um, um, life and death of great American cities is basically a pan of praise to a particular street in New York that she then uses to project uh, an yeah. argument. All, all Jane Jacobs liked to do was walk out of her apartment, be able to walk to the store, walk to the train. Mm. I mean, it, it's sort of a a crazy situation, but why would you not set a city up that allows people to easily walk through it? It just, you don't lose anything by doing it. You, you gain so much, you lose nothing. But if everything you're doing is based on transportation movements and transportation demand projections and use, right, and uses, it means that you're losing every other component of cities. It just is mind-boggling to me that we plan cities like this, and then we stand up as if there's no problem and say, well, we're gonna widen that road because we, need, we have capacity issues, so we're gonna take this eight-lane highway and make it 12 lanes, or like a project we're working on in South Australia where they're building a new highway for $700 million between a research district and a, <laughs> a university, so people, and they think that you're gonna walk over about 700 feet of open, uh, highway to go between these spaces. And so you know what their response is? You know what the, 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 the design solution is? A gondola, right? But that's the, nobody's laughing. I mean, it, it, but it's insane. 
Everybody's staring at me like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Nowhere in the world does that work. Does anybody ever use the Emirates gondola in London to get over the Thames? Never. It just doesn't work. But you can make numbers up for it. And then somebody will say, oh, that's a great idea. And some politician says, okay, well, let's go build it because it's cover. But nobody ever uses it. So go back to the roses from Kenya, right? We're buying the roses from the Netherlands in all of this stuff. All of this stuff. Because, yeah, we've got loads of data. But the data is not telling us how to build the things that facilitate interactions in cities. And I will tell you, I'm sure there are lots of planners and landscape architects and everybody else out there, but I'm an architect, not a planner, not, not I mean, urban design is a made-up thing, right? So I learned how to build buildings. I know exactly how big buildings have to be to accommodate cars, people, um, parking decks, everything. And so I know how big to make a block that's big enough to accommodate 95% of the buildings that will get built there, but not too big right, to make it uh, unmanageable. But everybody thinks that the bigger the block, the more flexible it is. But the most flexible city in the world is, is New York, and it has some of the smallest blocks in the world. So just at the most basic level, what we're saying doesn't match up with reality. Well, I'm also uh, reminded of, of Haussmann in Paris in the uh, 1850 to yeah. 1870 period, which was based entirely around streets. And the streets were good because they generated economic value. So even Hausman, as you all know, even built the, the facades because he was so interested in the creation of a beautiful public space, which at that point was the relocation of the public realm because they didn't have a thing called democracy. They had an emperor. So they could do whatever they wanted to do. But it actually worked really well. And so things like that can happen. And then people just slid their apartments behind this facade. That's taking it to a kind of extreme. And I'm not advocating that we all go back to the sort of uh, uh, area of empires for government, but you know, at some, some place between these two things, it's got to work. So I kind of rant about this everywhere I go and, and get blank stares and people are like, yeah, 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 whatever. But then every single one of you is buying a ticket to Paris and you go to the center of Paris, you're buying a ticket to New York, and you get off the plane and you go to the center of the city and you walk out your hotel room without a map, I'm going to get a cup of coffee, I'm just going to wander through this. And the entire experience is fantastic. Yet we're designing things in the absence of that experience. And I probably have 20 more years left on this earth, and I'll keep talking about this. And I think at the end of those 20 years, we'll probably have built about 10 or 20 additional streets, right? That's probably where we are. So anyway, yeah, that's a question. Uh, yeah. Could you wait for the microphone? Yeah. So if, if use isn't a driver, and the streets are the things that glue everything together, do you have an optimum design and uh, sure. structure for the streets? Absolutely. So, so this is, that's a great question. Is there an optimum design? And so the optimum design for the block is 240 feet by 360 feet. I throw that out there, right, because of course that's not exactly what it is. But with, somewhere around there is where you can actually accommodate different buildings and still have a walkable, connected environment. The size of the street is, is, is interesting because the Champs-Élysées is about 220 feet wide, whereas a kind of typical street is more about 110 to 120 feet wide. So depending on the hierarchy of the design of cities, because remember, there's still a design element, a design element, right, to this, we can start to manipulate that. It depends what you want the experience to be. Can I just say, um, 
We should probably say that a foot, they're just over three feet. Uh, to, three to, feet is a meter. To, to a yeah, meter. sorry. You know, just to give you some idea of, yeah. of, of, of scale. So the, yeah, yeah, right, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking again of Hausmann. <clears throat> the framework is streets, but he did create or allow these extraordinary monuments to be created at, at the intersections. So, so there's another piece of cities mm. which is the public monument, and so mm. Sixtus V was actually, when he yeah. came back and reconfigured medieval Rome and set the obelisks up through a pattern through, through the, the center of Rome, he created avenues, a via, right, to see, to move from point to point, avenue to come to, two places in the landscape that were public, that were unifying this structure. Mm. All of these, I mean, there's no absolute answer to, to the way this needs to work. Rome works differently than Paris, differently than New York, but the common thing in every single one of these is a very tightly connected street framework. And interestingly, Sixtus's monuments, which were themselves a, a, a loose marker of the pilgrimage routes to the seven yeah, churches yeah. of Rome, um, he had the problem that not all of Rome was built up. You know, the, the seven monuments, the seven churches of Rome, the most important churches in Rome, which obviously includes St. Peter's and uh, uh, the Lateran and Santa Maria Maggiore, um, were all rather remote from the historic imperial pagan Roman center yeah, right. because there were places of Christian worship or, or martyrdom. Uh, and uh, so Rome didn't actually fill out as a develop, developed area those areas until no, the 19th but century. nothing does. New York yeah. didn't fill out. Yeah. When they put the master plan, the <laughs> commissioner's plan in place for New York in 1811, they yeah. thought it would be centuries, centuries yeah. before it got built out. It was built out in about 60 years, right? Mm -hmm. So going back to, so things like FAR, drive me crazy. Does anybody even know what FAR means? It's an irrelevant, unusable system that was invented from whole cloth in the 1950s, right? It has no basis in terms of density or use. It's a crazy metric to design cities. It's right? floor area ratio. Floor area ratio, but yeah. the unit size could be entirely different. Hmm. The parking ratios that have spread throughout the world that were based on completely flawed statistical analyses in the early 1970s in the United States are still in use today. The entire framework that we have for designing cities is flawed, and we keep using this stuff. It's unbelievable. Because once it's written down, it has currency. I, I'm also reminded of, of another great advocate of streets, a South African architect, Joe Noero, um, who has appeared at uh, World Architecture Festival several times recently last year. And in the work he does in very, very poor townships in, in South Africa, he says the street is the only comprehensible form of public space. Yeah. Because a street gets you from one place to another. And can you think of a single public square or public garden or any you know, piazza that doesn't have streets that take you to and from it? No, of course it does, because yeah. it's connected to a public framework. Yeah. You had a question? Yeah. Anyone? No. Do you want, is there a microphone? You can just say it and I'll re-say well, it. I'd like everyone else to hear it if we can. Okay. Sorry, David. But, uh, Uh, thanks for your very interesting analysis. Um, while I agree with almost everything you've said and applaud it, I wonder when you said that there's a lot to gain and nothing to lose by providing these streets. Oh, yeah. And I wonder if that's really the case, because I think, would you agree that rather than all this being accidental, it's part of a deliberate effort Yeah to put public space into private hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, of course, And to create hyperbolic. demand for automobiles yeah. and yeah, yeah. gasoline and so on. Absolutely. So your question is absolutely right, and it's very thoughtful. 
And if I were sitting in a, working out a project with you, I'd be thinking the exact same way. But I'm trying to get people out there to move in a certain direction, so I'm being purposefully hyperbolic, right? Challenging you to come up with those things that we do lose, right? And then weigh those against the things that we gain when we put streets in. It's always a balancing act. I just want streets to be a little bit more prominent and just legal in most places, right? But yes, you're exactly 100% right. I think we can go on talking, David, nope. but I, I would like to thank, thank you and leave you with, with perhaps one last point, which is that you know, the problem with projecting the future is we, we, you know, we've got two variables. We, can't, we don't know what will happen. We might be able to predict a little bit and be perhaps 20% right if we're lucky. And of course, we'll all have different opinions about both what will happen and what we right. might want. So we're dealing with an enormous range of complexity and a plurality. And what seems to me to be touching on something which is related to some of the themes we're discussing on the festival hall stage as well, is that perhaps the underlying point here is the subjective but universal experiences we take. And we all, you know, our experience of streets by definition is subjective, yeah. but there's probably enough commonality between them for us to be able to have some idea of yeah. what, what I, we think I would makes just say that neurologists mm. and, and uh, neurological research would, would take issue with that and that there is some definite objectivity to this, the way people move through space and the way we perceive oh, it. No, I'm, I, I think there is, but I, I'm talking about the general, the, the experience and not just the movement, the impressions we have will differ. But, but yeah. the point is that we can come to some sort of yeah. shared understanding. Yeah. And that, I think, is where design and indeed cultural activity in general is, is so important. Totally because agree. You're not going to get it through planners and floor area totally ratios. Totally agree. And if you're interested in that, you should read Echo's work on semiotics. You'll yeah. take care of it, no problem. Okay, I was, I was thinking back to Aristotle. And, yeah, uh, absolutely, and Aristotle. Aristotle, what he says about Hippodamus and Miletus, yeah. you know, basically Hippodamus and Miletus was a typical architect. He dressed in a peculiar way and he was a bit of a showman. That um, sounds very so, familiar, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> so, David, thank you oh. very much. Thank you. Yeah. Mm.